Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. With branch closures, revenue losses and potential mergers, has the pandemic accelerated changes in the Irish banking sector? And how will those changes affect your pocket and rural communities? On our first panel tonight, Fine Gael Senator Regina Doherty, Independent TD Michael McNamara and Brian Hayes, Chief Executive of the Banking and Payments Federation of Ireland. Young people are urged to comply with COVID-19 restrictions as arrests are made over a Limerick street party. We'll have reaction. And as COVID hospital numbers come under control, is the economy being sacrificed for public health with public expenditure escalating way beyond estimates? Later with vaccine certificates and talk of green zones, can we expect international travel or are we looking at another staycation summer? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Now, it's been a bad couple of weeks for the banking sector with all banks announcing branch closures and Ulster Bank set to leave the Irish market entirely. Brian Hayes, Chief Executive of the Banking and Payments Federation of Ireland, joins us now via Skype. Brian, thank you for joining us. The first thing I want to ask you about is the many branch closures which are happening. And I know there's these excuses that people don't go into the branches as much as they used to. But hasn't that become a self-fulfilling prophecy because you kept reducing the numbers of people working in the branches and the services available until such point as people didn't find a reason to be going in there? Well, there's a lot of change going on in the entire banking sector, Matt, as you know, and a lot of that change was well in advance of COVID. What's happened, I think, since COVID is a kind of acceleration of the change that was going on, the move to online, the move to the kind of payment systems that we're seeing. And if you look, for instance, at the number of bank branches across the European Union the last 10 years, they're down by nearly half over that period of time as to the total number of banks down from about 8,500 to just under 6,000 by over 25%. So it's this huge consolidation that's gone on uh, in the last decade or so. And it's inevitable as people move towards online and in a sense, they've got probably a more daily relationship with their bank because they're on their apps, they're checking their balances, they're doing payments through their phone, through their wallets, through, through the, their watches. It's inevitable that this change, which, is, which, which, which we've seen in the last number of years, has just been accelerated as a consequence of COVID. I was speaking to someone in Bank of Ireland the other day and they, they made a point to me that, you know, 80% of their agribusiness, their farmers, they now apply for lending online rather than going to a branch. So, you know, customers are voting with their feet. They're doing things differently. It's a digital agenda. But there's a huge responsibility for the banks in this because... You know, we can't forget there are older customers who are more potentially more challenged 
by the move to online banking, more vulnerable customers that need more support. And the banks have to do a better job, really, in helping that adaptation, especially amongst an, an, an older co cohort. Because there is also an argument, Brian, that the Irish banks have been very slow in developing the type of apps that people really want to use, and that you also have issues for many people having access to the internet because of broadband slowness in many parts of Ireland. So maybe are you getting a little bit ahead of yourself here? Well, I think that the banks are not just moving with the time, they're moving with what their customers need. And um, the old distribution model around the banking industry was very much around a personal relationship with your local bank manager, a personal relationship with the branch, um, a lot of trust built up. And I think even though people are moving to a digital format now, uh, it's, there's a big responsibility in the banks to actually respond to what their customers need and want in terms of the products that are, that are there for them. Um, but there is that responsibility that, it, that is very, very important. You know, we all know the mistakes that were made in the past. Uh, there's been a huge investment by the banks in terms of the apps rollout and the functionality. If you look at any modern app by any of the big Irish banks today, pillar banks, you know, they're, they're full of functions, they're full of things that you can do. And I think that is competition. It's good competition, but it's also a response to the kind of change that we're seeing in the digital area, especially in the payments area. But you and mentioned competition, Brian. Happened. Isn't there a major issue with Ulster Bank pulling out? And there have been many other banks that have left the Irish market over the last decade that we don't have enough competition. And what that's going to mean for the consumer is lower interest rates on deposits, higher interest rates on loans, and a whole raft of service charges in the absence of that competition. So this issue of competition is, is really central for the industry and central for the banks, ultimately, for their, their profitability, because we need profitable, commercially sensible banks that would turn profit not just to their shareholders, but essentially to, to the public shareholders, where there's still a large public shareholding. But this has happened across Europe. The whole consolidation agenda from the ECB to other regulators is around having fewer banks because you need banks of scale, Matt. Are you not still overcharging, particularly for mortgages, given that Irish mortgage holders are paying way more than so many other mortgage holders throughout the rest of the European Union? So, so this is a really important point. Um, and I think that there's very little public understanding as to why that is. And there's essentially three reasons. One is the Irish banks had to hold three times as much capital as other Eurozone banks because of what happened 10 years ago, but also because of the model of the economy. Secondly, we also have twice as many non-performing loans as other Eurozone countries. But thirdly, if I'm a German or French bank and no one pays me uh, what they owe me, I get 45% of that asset back in terms of the enforcement of security. If I'm an Irish bank, I get 11% back. It takes me 44 months on average to get that asset back, where it takes me 10 months in the UK. So we have very particular issues to address, uh, which ensure that uh, the cost of credit in Ireland is more expensive. Now, there is no Irish bank that's stopping other competitors coming in. We welcome people coming into the market, but the fact, Matt, is they're not coming in. They're leaving. And there's a fundamental question we've got to ask ourselves. Why are they leaving? What's so particularly wrong about the Irish approach to banking, which makes it very difficult 
to have a profitable, uh, sustainable, commercially sustainable banking industry in this country. Thank you very much, Brian Hayes. Well, joining us on the panel now, Fine Gael Senator Regina Doherty and Independent TD Michael McNamara. Regina, given that the state has controlling shareholdings in AIB, EBS, permanent TSB, and also a significant chunk of Bank of Ireland, how much sympathy do you have for all of these excuses being made by the banks for their decisions? Well, I suppose the most important people at the centre of this are the employees and the customers. And so if there's anybody that you would have sympathy towards, it's definitely the security of employment of the employees um, and the service delivered to our customers. And I know customer behaviour is changing. Um, it certainly has been accelerated over the last year. Even cash is going out of business. Most people don't have money in their pockets anymore. They use their cards. But at the end of the day, we have a massive cohort um, that's predominantly based in rural Ireland that's now going to be left without counter service. And I think that's a real shame. And it it's certainly a real does. shame, but the government could surely do something about well, it because the, you control those banks. Yeah, don't well, you? the difficulty is, is we don't. The boards of management control the banks. And although we are a shareholder and obviously have to ensure the return on our investment, it's the board that makes those decisions. Uh, we can certainly obviously feed in our displeasure, which has happened well, over so the last Boards of, of directors tend to act to actually the interests of the shareholders. Yeah, um, we're, we only own 14% um, of Bank of Ireland. Uh, and so to be fair, although it isn't a pleasant announcement to have been made this week, particularly for the 88 branches and their staff associated, the most important thing we can do now is to make sure that we have a third force in Irish banking. We need a debate on the future of banking and we absolutely need to ensure that the um, indications this week by Bank of Ireland that they will do a deal with a unpost uh, allows unpost to excel the way they have done in the last okay. 12 months to continue to give that counter service. Michael McNamara, is this thing about it being a hammer blow to rural Ireland, a little bit of an exaggeration. I mean, how many people were really using their bank branches around rural Ireland? Well, obviously not many in the past um, 12 months, particularly uh, our Bank of Ireland branches, which were effectively shut down and then reopened with a, a very reduced service. But I mean, it's not just about personal banking, and we're discussing that a lot. It's also about business banking. If I could give an example of Clare, which I know best, uh, Kilkee and Milton Alway are both uh, busy market towns, heavily reliant on tourism. Tourism is largely, or when it reopens, it's largely a, a cash business. So what are businesses in Kilkee and in Milton Albee during the Willie Clancy week, for example, when most tourist businesses are in a very high proportion of their, their revenue during that particular week, where are they going to be able to get monies every morning? The are they going post to, office perhaps? Well, step in? Yes, and a government representative earlier said that a deal had been done where the local post offices would step in, and I'm sure the local post offices will provide personal banking services. I greatly welcome that. I've asked on post yesterday to confirm that they will be able to provide business banking, take the Lodgements, the large cash lodgements that they could expect in Kilkee and uh, and uh, Milton Malbay, and to be able to give out cash in the morning, small like large amounts of small change, and I'm still waiting co for confirmation of that. For example, you know. The, the government representative also said that all ATMs would be maintained, and yet when Clare FM contacted uh, Bank of Ireland, they said that they wouldn't um, give any commitment to maintaining ATMs in Milton Albay, in, Kil in Kilkee and in uh, Tulla, where there is an ATM, but it's in a supermarket. Now, an ATM in a supermarket is one thing, but of course, it's not accessible at night time. Um, and you can't, there's, a, there's a, 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 a withdrawal limit, and you can't lodge money into and, those and Michael, ATMs. in a lot of rural Ireland, the bank branches tend to be some of the most imposing, impressive buildings, the heart of the town. Indeed, yeah. What's going to happen with a lot of those? Should the state be considering perhaps requisitioning those buildings if they're not going to be in use 
to use them as maybe internet centres for people who don't have access to broadband. Some, I mean, my colleague uh, Michael Fitzmaurice called for something like that tonight. I mean, if this was a, 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 an international uh, corporation that was leaving a town, inevitably uh, they would donate something to the community to try to, to make up for the loss. So, I mean, the very least that they could do is to donate these buildings, which by and large are landmark buildings uh, around the place. For example, you know, they're big imposing buildings in the middle of towns which have a dereliction problem already. Regina, is this going to though accelerate a possible two-tier economy in this country between rural and urban? That even if there are many urban branches when closed down as well, they're not perhaps as important as they would be in local towns and villages around the country? So I think that's the challenge that we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. But the, the fear is there. Michael alluded to the fact that I think OnPost can very easily and graciously take over uh, the retail sections of these banks. But the SME loan lending, uh, and I think it's there's data that shows that when there isn't a branch in a town, the SME in that town or the area around it don't get access to credit the same way as they would in the urban. We need somebody to take over that reach or that commercial sector. We need a strong third force who's that in Irish be? banking. Well, I think that's the challenge at the moment because as Brian Hayes said earlier on, the banks are leaving Ireland. They're not coming into Ireland. There well, are does that mean the government banks. has to use the shareholding and permanent TSB no, I tell to recapitalise that and make it the third force? I think what we need to do is actually address the issues in banking. So again, and it pains me to say this because you nearly start to feel sorry for the banks at this stage, the capital reserves that they do have to take because of the risk element associated with lending and mortgages in Ireland are far significant and different to the rest of the the European Union, and that's borne out in the interest rates that everybody's paying yeah, on their mortgages. Yeah, but if those were relaxed, so, would you actually trust the banks to actually reduce their so mortgage okay, interest uh, rates rather than using the opportunity right, to enhance their profits? That's where the new SEER uh, policy comes in, the new central bank legislation is going to come in to make sure that there actually is enforcement there, strong legal enforcement and regulatory uh, restrictions to make sure that those people who are operating in our Irish market can't operate um, with anything but, you know, meticulous uh, attention towards their customers. They can't operate in I think it's important to point out that at least in Clare, um, Bank of Ireland are not closing any branches in towns where there is a competitor. So it's quite a cynical move. I mean, you know, it's basically they're they're not closing where there's a competitor because they lose customer. They undoubtedly lose huge amounts of customers to those competitors in those towns. So they're closing in towns which have relied upon them uh, for business. And as I say, it, it is hugely important because, you know, OK, there is a move away from cash, but certainly bars, restaurants and the tourism sector is a cash business. Is there not a danger that perhaps we're maybe looking a little bit too much romantically at the way things were done, but that the modern Irish consumer is looking to Revolut and N26 and other... Certainly young Platforms. people are, yep. Certainly young people are, and that poses a problem for the banks. But, you know, that's not, I mean, I, nobody's doing business banking with Revolut. And there are lots of businesses in these small towns that have a long-term relationship with uh, Bank of Ireland, for example. Uh, Bank of, I'm one of the, I'm in a town which doesn't, uh, uh, isn't affected, there's a bank there. But, you know, it, it is a, a, a very detrimental step for banks or for okay. businesses in those towns. All right, we want to move on because there were five arrests following a large gathering in the Castle Troy area of Limerick last night near the University of Limerick. We're joined now via Skype by Labour councillor Elena Seikas. Elena, thank you very much for joining us here on The Tonight Show. What has the reaction been to the events of last night? I mean, were they an outlier or were they just the culmination of many things that have been going on in the area recently? Well, everybody has been condemning uh, the, the events that happened there last night. I think it is very unfortunate that um, something like that happened 
And what it makes it worse um, is that, like many incidents which have been, um, which have happened in the past, but um, what it makes it worse about last night is that this happened during a pandemic in the middle of a lockdown. Um, and this is totally unacceptable. And everybody is condemning what happened there last night. OK, we have five charges having been brought. We don't want to discuss that, but others have been fined for their participation in what we're seeing on screen at present. But is that sufficient? Or do you think the University of Limerick should be doing more in relation to any students who are identified? Yeah, well, I know UL and the Gardaí are working together to identify the people who organised the event and the people who have taken part in this event. And uh, my understanding is that um, every student who would have taken part in this event will face suspension pending um, a full investigation. Uh, but um, And I know they have increased the patrols in the area. Um, and this uh, is, is great. Um, UL will also say that all UL students are um, subject to a code of conduct and this is great, but I think UL need to communicate more and better the practices and procedures and they need to put in place some very strict rules and make sure those rules are followed by all the students and make sure that they enforce those rules because the majority of the students would be very well behaved and would work really hard. It's just a minority that are engaging in such behaviour and this is not acceptable. Thank you very much, Elena. Michael McNamara, is there not a danger that we're actually going to start punishing people too severely for infractions? That, you know, if somebody gets thrown out of university for this, this could have a major detrimental long-term effect on their lives and careers. Might we be going too far in trying to punish people? Well, I mean, I don't know if everybody there was a university student, but it would certainly be very unfair if, if those who were university students were somehow uh, suffered a different punishment to those who weren't uh, students. I mean, this would have been antisocial behaviour in any other year other than this year. Elena is somebody I, I know well, a very hard working counsellor in this particular area and this is a, a regular problem with antisocial behaviour as it is in other campuses particularly during rag week and it is uh, rag week in UL. I'm not seeking to excuse it or condone it. Sorry, in why any is way. there a rag week going on? Well, I, I said I'm not seeking to excuse it or condone it, but it does point to a problem, and that is, I mean, we, we had lots of student or young people gathering last summer and there was a similar level of outrage and condemnation. But I think it does point to a problem that I don't think that we can go right through this summer with the same level of restrictions on young people in particular being able to congregate somewhere. I'm not condoning what happened in any way. I mean, it would be antisocial behaviour at any time. But we do have to allow young people to meet outdoors safely this summer. Not now, but this summer, Regina, because we can't do, continue do on the road that, that we had last summer. Is the case summer. that if you actually have too strict <coughs> restrictions on younger people that they're going to break out in the way that we saw last night? I think uh, I found myself nodding my head at everything you're nearly saying, which is um, probably unusual. Worrying, probably. Yeah. 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 Well, no, not worrying. Um, I think Michael's right. First of all, if anybody was expelled from university and the rest of their life impacted because of um, a moment of madness last night, I think that would be far too strict uh, a response. But it is public order effects, uh, offences that were conducted last night and they should be carried out. Uh, the, the response to that should be carried out accordingly. But you are right. Sorry, like, a lot of people want to know, why are they there in the first place?
first place. Now, this isn't so, okay, on we campus know they accommodation. Been, right, we know they shouldn't have been. But at the end of the day, are we going to castigate every single young person in the country, the vast majority of them who have absolutely closed themselves off in their bedrooms, their homes and their back gardens for months now on end because of a few small number of people um, who didn't conduct themselves, I suppose, with dignity last night? There does need to be a response, both from the local police uh, and maybe, you know, from public opinion. But we need to temper that response with the knowledge that we have, you know, asked these young people, middle-aged people, old people, our kids, to stay at home within the 5K for many, 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 many weeks now. And it's it's hard for them. They're young people well, at the end of the day. Well, let's move on to the issue of vaccines, which I believe you brought up at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting tonight. We're hearing that there was an 18,000 shortfall in the number of vaccinations delivered last week. Are things going off track? And if so, who's to blame? So I was curious, I, I live in a village where we have two GPs, um, only two GP practices, and neither of them have had a vaccine yet. So therefore, all of our over 85s are still at home waiting for their phone call. They don't even have an appointment yet. Um, and so I asked the question this evening, is that why? I understand there was a shortage in the AstraZeneca uh, delivery this week, and that's fine. But, but Anna, then, the AstraZeneca isn't going to the over 85s, Well, is it? what I was concerned about was that 88,000 vaccines were held back last week. So why are we holding back? Mm. You know, when now I was it was explained to me this evening that the Moderna vaccine, that the uh, contract that we have, that we are required to hold 50 percent of our vaccine supply back uh, as part of that contract. But look, there are some frustrations, I suppose. You can see them from our GPs. They're on Twitter. Twitter, they're writing letters. My own GP uh, wrote letters to all of her patients this week. There are frustrations, I suppose, with it bedding in. But the sooner it does bed in, obviously, the more satisfied people will be, the more confidence there'll be in the whole supply chain. And then all of us can Michael, start having a bit think, of hope. Will the relevant people take responsibility for any delay in the rollout? Um, well, I, I don't know. First of all, we need to establish the cause of the delay. Obviously, we're getting vaccines through the European Union and that has been problematic and that's very well aired. But if we're going to have longer and tighter restrictions than every other country until we're vaccinated, then I think we need to take additional steps to ensure that we get those vaccines. And I do think, though, that, you know, we're talking not about young people. I mean, from talking to a lot of people who are much older and for whom COVID poses a far greater risk, statistically at least, I think once they're vaccinated, it's going to be very difficult to persuade them uh, to, to, to continue with restrictions because, I mean, they're very well aware that... Uh, you know, life is finite and they're looking at the same four walls for a long time. And I do think it's going to it's going to be a lot of pressure from that age cohort I mean, as well we as from younger doing people. More? Like I see Austria and Denmark are now trying to do deals with Israel for additional supplies, even as part of the EU. Should we be doing things like that? Well, certainly with the United Kingdom. I mean, um, John Taylor, I forget what his current title is, said that they should be giving excess vaccine to the Republic of Ireland. And I think we do need to talk to the United Kingdom because there does appear to be a lot of excess vaccine there. Will we swallow fair, our pride and take the vaccine well, from here, the UK? I, I don't think we have any pride with regard to making sure that our, our people are safe, but we have ordered multiples of what we actually need. It's just getting it here. And so in the next couple of weeks, I do expect to see uh, the vaccination numbers go from 100,000 a week to 300,000 a week. And that should give us all the confidence, notwithstanding the difficulties that we're having uh, with supply at the moment. Thank you very much. We leave it there for part one. Our thanks to Michael McNamara. Regina Doherty will stay with us because after the break, with tax receipts down and expenditure exceeding estimates, is the economy been sacrificed for public health? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now, the Fine Gael Senator Regina Doherty is still with us. We're joined in studio by Edgar Morgan-Roth, Professor of Economics at Dublin City University, and also Professor Jerry Killeen, ecologist and epidemiologist, joins us via Skype from Cork. Now, if I can start with you, Edgar, yesterday the Exchequer returns for the government. Not surprisingly, tax revenues are less than expected. The expenditure is an awful lot more. But how much longer can that go on for? Well, at the moment, we've been we've been very lucky with the with the general environment that uh, all the countries in Europe have had to borrow. Uh, interest rates are low, so we've been managing to do this. I think the worry is that as this continues, we will eventually run up so much debt that in a couple of years' time, it's going to start biting much, much more. And that's when we're going to see the real problem. So at the moment, we can get away with it. So when uh, you say real problems, what sort of real problems will So the, the real problem is that uh, at some point, you either have to pay back the debt or you have to refinance it. And it is very likely that interest rates are going to be much higher than they currently are at the moment. They're negative. And when that happens, our interest rate bill is going to increase significantly. And that's going to impact then on our ability to, to uh, spend and does or... does that mean that we'll have to either raise taxes or cut spending? Exactly. Um, so that's, that's why we don't want to run up debt indefinitely. Uh, in fact, at some point, um, borrow, the, the people we're borrowing from will also start thinking that maybe this is not sustainable and raise their interest rates. Okay, but then what about what happened in Britain today when their budget, they announced that they're going to start putting up corporation tax over the next two years from the current 19% rate to 25%, that they've decided to tax the rich companies. Should we be doing the same? Uh, well, I don't think we can actually do the identical thing that they have done. Um, there's also a question whether this is actually a, a good idea in the first place. But clearly, if you want to find extra money, you're going to have to look at, at, at taxes. And there are only so many options that a government has. In our case, I think it's much more likely if we were going to raise any extra taxes that it would be in something like a carbon tax where we would also want to incentivize people to do uh, uh, something for the environment uh, rather than going after corporation tax. But why not, Regina, go after the corporations and get more money off them? I mean, it always falls back on the people. We're still paying the universal social charge. Or we also have had enhanced rates. Why not 
not actually get the money off businesses rather than individuals and families? So I think the first thing that we need to do um, is when we start talking about reopening and recovery is to see where our business environment actually is. And I think it's fairly obvious um, to some and to markets that there are some businesses that have continued to thrive over the last 12 months, albeit that all of their employees are at home in their box bedrooms or their landings or wherever. And um, there's a tremendous amount of businesses who haven't. But there's also um, uh, an invisibility of the COVID effects that we haven't seen yet. And so all of your shops and um, high street places that are closed that are probably have defaulted on their rents, what kind of impact is it going to have onto the landlord or the, you know, the investment funds that own those rents? So we need to assess where we are next They won't year. have profits to tax. It's they likely. probably won't. So go after those that have profits. Or why not have, if you have a USC for individuals, why not have a special levy for big businesses and leave the 12.5% corporation tax alone? Yeah, I think to be fair, there's nothing is going to be off the table. What we've done in the last 12 months and we'll continue to do for the foreseeable future is to make probably the largest investment that in my lifetime I've ever seen um, in people and in business in this country. That needs to be sustained until we can start the recovery. Now, there's no reason why our economy can't bounce back, but it's to what level. And you are right, we do need to re probably refinance uh, our debts in the next number of years. Every four years we do it. There's already signs that the negative interest rates are going to go positive, albeit small, but that number will grow depending on the impact across the European Union. We need to be ready for that, but we also need to be ready for our economy but to Edgar, and does to this mean, that. though, that we also need to start considering if public health is dictating our restrictions and lockdowns at the moment, is it going to come a time very soon where the economy is going to have to have much more of a role to play in decision-making about lifting restrictions? I think uh, a lot of different factors that seem to have been put aside uh, should have been part of the decision making all along. That includes the economy, but more generally, uh, other aspects of health uh, and well-being um, need to be there when we're making decisions. Um, coming back to, to what Regina just said, I mean, there are businesses and individuals that that are unlikely to come back after this. Uh, and indeed, some of the, the aids that we have, and we have a lot, are not going to be helping them. Uh, so a lot of what we're doing currently is loans. And uh, there'll be a lot of businesses that will be uh, leveraged up uh, so much that they're unlikely to be viable businesses. So we're going to have a significant impact there. Professor Jerry Clean, you've been a zero COVID advocate, but that doesn't seem to be flying with the vast majority and with the government. But isn't it the case now that for economic reasons that there are going to have to be some opening up of business to actually create money in the economy? What's an option and what isn't? You just got to stick to the, the technical details. And I think your appraisal of what the what the uh, polls are saying or the, the, the surveys are saying, my reading of them is different. But let's focus on the things that we agree on. The things that we agree on is that you can't lock down an economy forever. You can't expect young people to stay locked up forever. And that's why I would have preferred to have this over last summer, which was perfectly doable. We're now three waves in, uh, still nobody's listening, and we can be out of this much faster with existing public health measures and vaccines backing them up then you know, we can be out of this by summer. So we all want to get to the same place, but you can't have an economic recovery from an epidemic that isn't over. Okay, but isn't it nearly over if that we get the vaccines rolled out by the summer or into September? Doesn't that end it and end any chance of a so-called fourth wave? Well, well, A, why wait? We'd lost 25 souls today. Uh, that will continue as long as we leave the numbers like that. 
B, we can accelerate things. Um, there's lots of room for, for getting back on, on track to be having the size of our epidemic every week. That's all technically feasible. If it wasn't, we'd already be in a fourth wave. Um, based on the current plan, which doesn't have a defined exit strategy other than waiting for vaccine scale up, you know, we're well on our way to a fourth wave. And in some age groups, that's already happening. So, you know, we've just got to, you know, get away from wishful thinking, get away from the whole concept of living with the virus. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with belts and braces. And then long, you know, medium term, we've got to think about, um, you know, really making ourselves robust Jerry, against variants over the next couple of years. Jerry, roll back there a second to this fourth wave. How could we get a fourth wave if already we're seeing a situation whereby the cases in our nursing homes and hospitals and the rest of it are dropping as we vaccinate the elderly and vaccinate the healthcare workers? Why in those circumstances, as even more people get vaccinated, would you be saying that there's a possibility of a fourth wave? Well, at present, it's still a very small proportion of our population that are vaccinated. And, you know, it's going to take months before we really get to full population coverage, which is required to stop transmission. And most people who end up in hospital aren't, you know, necessarily from, from, from obvious vulnerable groups. So you do need full population coverage before you stop transmission. You know, some parts of the country are already teetering on the edge of going back into exponential growth. And thankfully, you know, some parts of the country are absolutely flying. You know, uh, Cork, Kerry, Kilkenny, Cavan, Monaghan. And so that leads the way. But, you know, the big challenge is going to be it's going to be Dublin. And Dublin is at a very... Um, Sorry, Jerry, yeah, are you actually it, it, advocating... It of wind. Jerry, are you advocating that we continue with these lockdown restrictions as we have it for a considerably longer period of time? Or would you actually even toughen them? I would toughen them and make this as short as possible. And that has been my message for the last year. You know, harder okay. is faster, and we all need this to come to an end. Edgar, what do you make of that? Well, I, I think zero COVID really is a sideshow at this stage because nobody's going to do it. Uh, um, if you look at the evidence of countries that we might want to compare ourselves to, uh, you know, island nations, uh, thousands of kilometers from, from anywhere aren't really good comparator. The only zero COVID country that has a, a land border uh, is Vietnam. And uh, um, if you include, you know, Vietnam actually has had a, a, as strict a regime as Germany. So to actually maintain zero COVID, you're going to need to uh, extend your lockdowns. You're going to have tougher lockdowns. And you will never get there because the sort of position that we're in with supply chain linkages uh, across Europe, with commuting uh, and business travel that we need uh, to keep things going, uh, we're never going to stay at zero uh, if we ever got there. So the, the zero COVID idea, I think, is not a feasible idea. It's a very nice technical idea. What about idea, the idea, but... Jerry says, that if you do a much harsher lockdown, one that maybe we should have done already, that you can defeat and you can actually, or keep it down to a very low level and then open up. I don't think that with the with the level of disease we have and the fact that you have uh, asymptomatic uh, uh, infections, you're going to get down anytime soon to zero. 
Uh, and if you're not going to go to zero, this disease is going to be with us. So you're going to have to manage it. And that's, I think, what we have, uh, what the government is trying to do. So how quickly and, do you hope that we would start opening up for the sake of the we, economy and also people's we, mental we, health? As, as we roll out the vaccine, uh, there will be a decoupling between the serious disease and uh, the, the case numbers. Uh, as, as, as those that are most vulnerable will be protected through vaccination. And that will allow us to open up much more quickly. I'm going to go back to Jerry because he's looking extremely sceptical there. Yeah, well, this is my fourth pandemic that I've lived through. Uh, I've been responsible for two large-scale elimination events. And thanks for the epidemiological advice, but that's just technically misinformed and wrong. What about you, Regina Doherty? Because the government's announcement recently focused on four public health measures for the relaxation of restrictions. But doesn't there have to be an element of the economy taken into account as well? I think we need to start planning for reopening and recovery. And I don't think people should be afraid to have that conversation. And I'm, I'm very mindful, and I was saying it to Michael earlier on, I think politicians are afraid to talk about recovery for fear that the public might say, hold on a second, you know, we're still in the middle of this wave, which we are. But zero COVID would mean our 330,000 kids that went back to school on Monday wouldn't go back. The children that are due to go back on the 15th won't go back. Your five kilometre restrictions would be two kilometre restrictions, and there wouldn't be any sign between now and the end of the summer of my 86 year old father being able to walk anywhere other than his back garden. That's not sustainable when we have hauliers coming in and out of the country every single day, international travel for essential um, reasons. We have probably tens of thousands of people coming through uh, the border between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. So you can't, you can't have it both ways. Jerry, if you have an island like the Isle of Man who can't, who's in its new lockdown today and they yeah, can't manage mis- to maintain. That is, a, that is a misrepresentation of the technical plan we have in mind. I'm not sure where you're getting those details from, but it certainly didn't come from us. How worried are you, Jerry, about the variants beating the vaccines? Uh, very. Uh, we heard about the tragedy in Manaus early through through our family. My wife is Brazilian. And uh, when you see it reported in The Lancet and you look at the trajectory and you see how we could be setting ourselves up for a real sucker punch. And, you know, after all the work that's gone in, you know, I just, I'm begging the government, please don't leave us open to this because it's a virus. If you let it throw a curveball, it certainly will. We've seen Brazil, you know, variants from all over the world, some from not so far away. You know, let's not wait till we've got an Irish variant. Okay, we leave it there for part two. Our thanks to Edgar Morgendroth and Jerry Colleen for joining us. Finnegan Senator Regina Doherty staying with us because after the break, can we hope for a summer of international travel, having heard all that? Or will we be looking for staycation bargains? But before the break, we have some good news today. As American country star Dolly Parton got the jab that she helped to fund. So here's what she had to say. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. (laughs) I know I'm trying to be funny now, but I'm dead serious about the vaccine. I think we all want to get back to normal, whatever that is. And that would be a great shot in the arm, wouldn't it? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Finnegan Senator Regina Doherty has stayed with us. We're also joined by Owen Corey, editor of Air and Travel magazine. But Regina, you mentioned just before the break about people still coming into the country. And Richard Chambers from our newsroom was tweeting earlier about 11,000 people having come into the country last week. Why that many? Why are we not discouraging this? I, well, I think, first of all, we are trying to discourage with a whole plethora of um, restrictions that we've introduced, and not least of which is mandatory quarantining um, in the last week passed by both the Shannon and the Dáil. Um, but you have to reflect on the number is a fraction of what would normally come in. And the vast majority of people are either returning home, they're Irish. I think it was a 70-30% split that Richard spoke about this evening of being Irish, and those 30% being essential travellers. And the vast majority of the people who are Irish are travelling for essential reasons, either going to funerals, visiting somebody that sick and yes there but are still, some 11,000 people. people couldn't they be bringing a lot of sickness back with them but they're all they can't travel without a negative PCR test and so what we need to do instead of castigating and demonising an aviation industry that is at near collapse some 95% of international travel in this country has collapsed in the last 12 months and this is an industry not only has tens of thousands of employees that are currently being propped up by the money that we've spoken about in the last 10 or 15 minutes but we need this international connectivity if our open economy is going to take yeah, off and start again. So the state, can't castigate and demonise them and then expect them to be around in a couple of weeks' time or months' time to help us take off and recover. Yeah, but the state gives €150 million Euro loans to Come here, that's a drop in the ocean. And still manage to make people redundant Germany gave €10 billion. France gave €7.5 billion. Even Spain gave a billion euros to Iberia in the last number of weeks. We need to absolutely secure the international routes that have taken 10 years for Aer Lingus and, and Ryanair to build up over the last number of years to make sure that they are available Even if to people us. get laid off in Shannon after all that money is given to Aer Lingus? Well, first of all, the, the money that was given to Aer Lingus was a loan. They have to pay it back. So that's a misnomer. And yes, the CRSS and the TWSS, the wage supports are there to secure an income for Irish people. We closed down this industry for public health reasons. But if we're not careful, we'll have no aviation industry left to recover and help the open economy that we will so heavily re rely upon when we do reopen our skies in a couple of weeks or a couple I of weeks. I noticed that Michael O'Leary of Ryanair today in front of a UK parliamentary committee was cribbing that he wasn't getting enough support from the British government for Ryanair. But he was also saying he expects a 70% volumes of traffic this year compared to 2019. How does he expect to be flying that many people this year? I think Michael wouldn't like uh, government support to go to anyone because if it's a free flight without anybody getting state aid, he hopes to win that. He's hoping to put all those aircraft back in the sky. He's hoping that uh, the, you know, the vaccination uh, would have reached some sort of critical mass. But what he needs for that to happen really is some sort of decision make at European level that connectivity is important and to roll back on what's been happening over the last few weeks where uh, people have become very nationalistic and we also need people to stop being uh, the one-upmanship that my vaccine is better than yours. And also uh, when 
nations vaccinate large proportions of their population, they've got to be ready to open their borders. We can't have a situation where I've vaccinated 80% of my population. I'm not letting someone in from a country that hasn't. There's a lot of things can go wrong, but Michael's absolutely ready and he's keeping his pilot certified and his aircraft certified to put 70% of those but aircraft But hold on, wasn't the case last year? We heard an awful lot from the airline industry. Let yes. us fly. We're yeah. safe. You know, it's safe to travel on airlines, but isn't it the reality that an awful lot of the variance and the movement was caused by people going, flying from country to country? Shouldn't flying be the last thing that we allow again? Variants have changed the game. There's absolutely no doubt about that. The aviation industry, remember, Matt, has a history of safety. The reason an aircraft crashing in Indonesia is front page news here is that they look after safety well. They worked, they knuckled down and they kept, the, they put in the procedures, consulted EASA, ECDC and masking on board aircraft. It's not a vector of international travel. The number of imported cases since this outbreak, since it arrived in Ireland, is 1,014 out of our 220,000 cases. That's the uh, figure that the Irish health authorities have, and it's replicated across Europe, about 1%. The variants, though, have changed the game because people are saying um, it should be possible to stop the next variant getting through. And the ways of doing that... Uh, have they're they're very crude the only the the people tend to look back to almost monty python pull the drawbridge up and keep everybody out that seems to be the natural inclination okay well let's talk about solution. vaccine passports because certainly at the start of february michael o'leary was saying he didn't want to insist on people having them before they could fly is the travel industry going to change its mind in relation to vaccine passports and do you think will the political uh, will force them to do so the travel industry will take anything. If they say, uh, you know, get a holy stone and run anti-clockwise around the airport, they'll take that. They'll take anything that gets people moving again. Vaccine passports, uh, about 11 different uh, uh, models were looked at. And the one they're running with is the one that some uh, viewers will be familiar with from Emirates and Etihad. It's been pioneered largely there. More enthusiasm in Southern Europe for that, which is very heavily dependent on Europe than in Northern Europe. It's going to be a big deal for Ursula van, van der Leyen to get that over the line. But she is talking about getting it over in a month. The IATA are ready to go. But as I say, anything to get people moving. But I would always add that the aviation industry have their own staff to protect. They have their own, they don't want to get a reputation for bringing COVID or importing virus into any country. They're very good at that over the last 70 years and they're going to keep working at that. Regina Doherty, Greece is pushing for this because it needs the tourism revenue badly. But we need tourism revenue in this country as well. And we have a lot of people who want to go on foreign holidays. So will the Irish government back the idea of a vaccine passport? So I think if the European Union does, um, we won't be an outlier. Um, but we certainly will follow the guidance. Uh, and once there's confidence in travel, once we make it safer, once we invest, first of all, I think we need to start investing from a state perspective in those international routes to make sure that we still have them uh, post-COVID and obviously all the employment that goes with it. But we need to make travel safe. We need to stop demonising it the same way as we did with the building industry 10 years ago when we had a last recession, because we know what the impacts of that were with regard to building and employment. And if we keep demonising travel, as we have done so in the media and by politics over the last couple of months, we'll have nobody travelling and we'll have no airline industry and we'll have hundreds of thousands of people unemployed in a hospitality sector that is so heavily reliant on the 11 billion euros that comes in for that sector every year from international people coming to see Ireland so on our, our sites. What are the green zones that have been proposed? 
the idea is you link up with somebody else that you can have a relationship with. Like two household bubbles, is it coming It's together? basically bubbling country by country. The big inbound bubble for us would be Germany. Obviously, UK is closer. It's the biggest market. Might be more problematic. A big outbound one would be the Canary Islands, which have a very low rate. So, um, you know, we could have a situation where if the Ursula von der Leyen um, fails to open borders and Europe got very nationalistic, obviously at the very outbreak of this, they all said, let's fight this together and threw Italy under the bus. But in the absence of that, let's start looking at those uh, partnerships and we have lots of friends out there and lots of places where Irish people travel, that they're very welcome and very safe. Okay, and lots of people, we can offer safety in the other direction. If people do decide to take a punt on booking a flight in the hope that they'll be able to go on a holiday later in the year, are the airlines going to treat them fairly when it comes to switching flights or getting refunds? Very interesting to watch. They're pushing back the full refund, all the flexibility, month by month, but they haven't called the summer yet. The summer is where all the action is going to be. They're going to be losing money all the way through to June, maybe a bit later. And I will be. it will be interesting how uh, they, the airlines, what sort of flexibility they offer for peak season. I would imagine when push comes to shove at the end, they won't do last year what they, when effectively they done a bunk in, when it came to uh, refunding customers and looking after them at the crucial moment, but they will uh, offer more flexibility than we've ever seen in the aviation. We'll also see a magnificent seat sale if those 70% of aircraft are going to be filled. Thank you very much. That is all we have time for tonight. Our thanks to Senator Regina Doherty and Owen Curry. I'll be back on Radio Today FM tomorrow afternoon, back here at the slightly later time of 10.15 tomorrow night. A reminder that the Tonight Show is available as a podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For now, stay home and stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 